And then finally, it's a great pleasure and privilege to um, welcome Frank Jackson, Professor at Princeton and ANU, to this evening's um, meeting. His work, which ranges across the philosophy of mind, epistemology, metaphysics, and metaethics, needs no introduction. His latest book, Language, Names, and Information, was published by Wiley Blackwell in 2010. He is, of course, the author of one of the most famous thought experiments in the philosophy of mind, um, and thereby given rise to a new philosophical problem, which I feel is like planting a philosophical tree, which will bear fruit forever instead of producing a philosophical fruit. So um, he is also uniquely um, the junior member of uh, the only father-son duo to have given the John Locke Lectures in Oxford, Alan Cameron Gaynham in 1957 and 58. So... This evening, he's going to speak about Leibniz's law and the philosophy of mind. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be here. It's very nice to be here. Um, I, I'm just going to stand and, uh, and, and chat. Um, I, I will work this thing every so often so I don't get lost. Uh, can, can you hear me at the back? Suppose I said to you, Motion is identical with change of position over time. You'd probably say, that's not very exciting. <laughs> I don't think I needed uh, to be told that by a philosopher. I knew that already. So that would be a slightly boring property identity. Although, of course, as some of you all know, there have been philosophers who denied it. Indeed, there have been physicists who denied it. But what we're going to talk about this afternoon are uh, more controversial property identities and in fact correspondingly more interesting property identities like colour is identical with a certain reflectance property or believing that snow is white is identical with a certain neural property. We're going to be talking about interesting, controversial, challenging property identities like that. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is that sometimes we get lucky. Sometimes these difficult, challenging property identities can be tackled in an easy way. It turns out that there's an easy way into discussing whether they're true or false. And in a way, that's the core idea I want to get across. So I'm going to tell you about that first, and that will be really easy, which is not to say it won't be controversial. I know in discussion time, people will stick up their hand and say, you said that was easy, but it's false. Uh, that'll be the easy bit. Uh, and then we'll see uh, things get surprisingly complicated when you build on that, that issue. Bit, so. Here's the core idea. Suppose someone puts forward a controversial property identity. I gave you a couple of samples a moment ago, didn't I? So there we are. Suppose you've got interesting claims of the form P equals Q. P and Q are properties, which are controversial. We're wondering how to decide whether they're true or false. Well, when we get lucky, this is what happens. We've also got claims of the form E is evidence for P, and E is not evidence for Q, which are not controversial. It's pretty obvious that E is evidence for P, and E is not evidence for Q. Well, now we've got lucky, because we can use Leibniz's law, because P and Q differ in properties. One is such that E is evidence for it, the other is such that E is not evidence for it, so we can use Leibniz's law to educate the property identities. I'll set it down the slide and I say something similar in, similar in the printed version. We use the easy to assist with the hard, that's the idea. Now, I've just said you can use Leibniz's law with properties like E is evidence of P. That always raises a red flag. People say something like this. You can't use Leibniz's law with evidential properties. They're not right for Leibniz's law. Didn't we learn something about the opacity of belief context? And, uh, I don't think I need to give you that speech to you. Perhaps I just mentioned the masked man fallacy. That reminds you of the sort of worries people got. So I'm going to take a moment to say, I think those worries are all misguided. 
There's absolutely no reason why you can't use Leibniz's law for definitional properties. And if you already believe me, you can relax during this part of the talk. Let me start by saying something really plonking about Leibniz's law. There it is in front of us. X equals y, every property of x is the property of y, and conversely. This is the plonking bit. It's a big mistake to think that's a law which is true when x and y ranges over material objects. And when the properties in question are, as it might be, shape properties. It'd be a big mistake to say that says something like this. If x and y are material objects, then every shape property is a shape property of y, and every shape property of y is a shape property of x. Leibniz's law is as inclusive as can be. It doesn't just apply to material objects, it applies to properties, propositions, theories, everything. And the notion of a property is as inclusive as can be. Any way something might be counts as a property. So we have to think of it as being as inclusive as can be. In particular, it applies to properties. That is, if X and Y are properties, every property of X is property of Y and vice versa. And what's more, a property of a property, what's good evidence for that property of being instantiated, is a perfectly cautious property of a property. In particular, what supports the instantiation of a property is itself a property of that property. Now, why do I say that? Well, what's good reason for thinking something square? It's a function of the nature of the property of being square, isn't it? What's a good reason for thinking something square is very different from what's a good reason for thinking something was made in Argentina. And that just reminds us that what's good evidence for the instantiation of property is itself a property of the property. So you can use evidential properties in Leibniz's law, that's what I'm saying. And one more example, just to hammer the point home. The right experiments for a scientist to carry out to show that a star is so-and-so depends on what so-and-so is. It would be bizarre for philosophers to write to astronomers and say, the sort of evidence you should use to show that a property is so-and-so isn't a function of the property. Of course it's a function of the property. And that's all you need to use Leibniz's law for properties taking Evidential properties, properties, properties. That's our little background. Now what we're going to do is show how to use what I've just been saying to arrive at results concerning identity of properties. Sorry, I'll say that again. To arrive at results which tell us something interesting about what properties colours might be and what properties believing that snow is white might be. Let's start with colour. Lots of philosophers say something like that. Being red equals PR. What's PR? Whatever the best candidate optical science throws up for being the physical property of objects or their surfaces, which are correlated with things looking red. Lots of optical scientists and lots of philosophers that come to that say it's some kind of reflectance property. So the objects which are red are objects which have a certain distinctive kind of reflectance profile. So, but he said that. And that view is in fact described as the identity theory of colour, or the physical theory of colour, or sometimes as the Australian theory of colour, which is slightly painful for me because I'm about to say it's false. <laughs> okay. Now, here's the argument. <laughs> well, sorry. One more thing to say. This is, of course, the view for surface colour. They're not talking about the... They're not talking about the colour of wedges of jelly. They're not talking about the colour of light rays. They're talking about surface colour. Now, what I'm going to do is say this is false, and I'm going to give you an evidence argument. Just drawing on that point about Leibniz's law and the point that what's good evidence for a property is itself the property of the property. Here's how it goes. <clears throat> X is looking red and A, I'll tell you what I asked in a sec. X is looking red and A is good evidence for X is being red. 
Now, what's A? A is the sort of thing that Aristotle knew about the world. So when I say that X is looking red conjoined with A, it's good evidence for X as being red. What I'm saying is Aristotle had good reason to think that objects were red on occasion. And blue and green and yellow and so on. And the reason went back to the fact that they looked red or green and yellow. Now, of course, saying that's quite consistent with saying that X is looking red conjoined with what modern science tells us is good evidence for X is not being red. Lots of people say that what modern science tells us reveals that objects, in fact, aren't coloured at all. I'm not making a stand on that one way or the other, although I'll say something about it later on. I'm just saying, given the sort of thing Aristotle knew, surely looking red was good evidence of something being red. Now, I think you'd guess what's going to come, but here it is. But, of course, X is looking red conjoined with the sort of thing that Aristotle knew is not good evidence for X is having a certain reflectance. So we just use Leibniz's law. Being red and a certain reflectance profile differ in their evidential properties, so Leibniz's law tells us they cannot be the same property. And I said before, painful for me, because this is the Australian theory of colour, which I'm saying is false. Now, you can guess what's going to happen for belief. I'm just going to go through a basically the same argument in the case of belief. Here's how it goes. Many say that believing that it's raining equals neural state in. And again, this is painful for me because that's a very Australian view and I'm about to say it's false. <laughs> now, an evidence argument tells us that cannot be true. Here's how it goes. The evidence available to Aristotle on occasion is good evidence for his holding, but X believes that it's raining. X may have been himself, X may have been somebody else. The evidence available to Aristotle on occasion was never good evidence for his holding that X is an N, where N is some fancy neural state. Aristotle wasn't in a position to have opinions about what goes on in the brain. So, Leibniz's law, using evidential properties, tells us that believing that it is raining doesn't equal anything. Now, the conclusion that believing that it's raining doesn't equal n, and more generally the conclusion that mental properties can't be identified with neural properties, is of course a conclusion that's been around ever since people started talking about functionalism and multiple realizability, isn't it? But notice, I've got the same conclusion that people who push the multiple realizability argument use without mentioning multiple realizability at all. In fact, I think it's plausible that the multiple realizability argument really rests on the kind of epistemic considerations we've been talking about. Why do I think that? Well, we all know how the multiple realizability argument works. Perhaps Mari won't mind if I use her. <laughs> Mari and I have enormous functional similarities in terms of the way we respond to the world and you know, it's raining outside, we both say it's raining and so on and so forth. Um, so naturally, I think the evidential basis of thinking we've got mental states is much the same, the way we interact with the world. It would seem bizarre. You opened up my head and discovered, amazingly, that I'm silicon-based whereas Mari and everyone else in the room is carbon-based. So, well, that's, I'm afraid Frank Jackson doesn't have a single mental state because it's done a different way. That's basically how the multi-realizability argument goes. Now, what's going on here? Basically, what's going on is the idea that if you've got all the same sort of evidence we normally have, people living in mental states, but it's turned out to be differently realised, it will be arbitrary, ad hoc, chauvinistic, however you like to put the multi-realizability point, to say that one of us had mental states and the other didn't. But that's basically an epistemological argument. So what I'm suggesting is this conclusion, that mental properties are identical neural properties, typically reached by the multiple realizability argument, get it by this epistemic argument, and I think that's perhaps the more fundamental way of getting it. 
So I've said all that. Now, that's the really easy part of the talk. Okay. Now what we're going to see is actually these relatively simple reflections cause quite a bit of trouble. And I'll, I'll try and do it as slowly and clearly as I can. Okay, we'll start with colour. We'll do matters, properties in a second. Now, the observation about evidence, remember the observation was that something's looking red, relative to the kind of things that Aristotle knew is good evidence of something being red. That observation, of course, leaves open lots of possibilities for what being red might be. For example, it leaves open the possibility that being red is a property of the experience of looking red. Obviously, something's looking red is good evidence for you're having certain kinds of experiences because looking red itself is an experience. That's obvious. And again, it leaves open the possibility that being red is the disposition to look red because obviously something that's looking red can be good evidence for something having the disposition to look red. That's all obvious. So, the point about evidence leaves open those two views about what being red might be. However, it seems to me another observation excludes those views. I'm now going to something, say something which some people think is obviously true. Of course, I'm one of those who thinks it's obviously true. I wouldn't say it. It's obviously true. But there'll be people in the room who don't believe it. But I'll try and say it in a honking way as I can. Here's the observation which I think excludes those two possibilities. I think the representational nature of X as looking red rules those accounts out. Now, what I mean by the representational nature of looking red is this. And this is the bit where I'm going to say something that seems to me and many terribly obvious. It seems to others to be false. Um, oh, actually, I was going to look for a red thing, but actually I've got something on the side. Um, the most obvious fact about something's looking a certain colour is that you're having an experience that represents that the object's a certain way. And indeed, in the case of surface colour, it represents that the surface of an object is a certain way. That is the most obvious thing about looking red, that it says, look, I'm red. It doesn't say something about me. It says something about the object. Okay. Now, if that's right, of course, two candidates up top can't be right, because they are essentially accounts of being red, which make being red partly a matter of how I am, or how you are, or how the normal colour percipient is. But the representational nature of looking red, in my view, rules that out. Because, after all, what does looking red represent? Well, it represents that the object um, is an elephant. No, that's not right. <laughs> it represents the object red. So being red is just the property looking red represents something to have. And what looking red represents is something about the way the object is, not about the way the perceiver is. So, and there's a little picture. I'm inviting you all to look at those raspberries. And I trust, except there's a few people who are red line colourblind in the <coughs> audience, you're all having an experience which represents that the surface of those things is a certain way. And it's this observation that's going to cause trouble later on. Okay. Now, let me just say a little bit about what I mean by representation. Well, first thing to say is what I don't mean by representation. <laughs> I don't mean by representation causal covariation. I know when we give the second year lecture on Stampf and Stolnacker and Dretzky, we use as examples of representation causal covariation. So we say the number of tree rings represents the age of the tree, and of course that is the case of causal covariation. But that's not what I mean by representation here. But of course it can't be what I mean by representation, because of course if it's true that looking red causally covaries at a certain reflectance profile, then of course, given I've just said friendly things about the representational view of looking red, of course it would follow that red was indeed the very physical property that looking red covaried with. So I couldn't possibly mean by representation causal covariation. But I don't mean it. What I mean by representation 
is a state which, by its very nature, says things are a certain way. By representation, I mean what happens when you hear a sound behind your left ear. The very nature of that sound says, I'm here. <laughs> well, here's a demo for you. You all had an experience? Hasn't that experience, by its very nature, said motion uh, from right to left in your case? That's what I mean by representation. And that's quite different from causal covariation. Uh, as some of you all know, when I hear a sound behind my left ear, there is actually a causal covariation between the location of the sound and an out-of-phase effect of the ears. That's how the brain actually tracks where the sounds come from. But of course, when I hear a sound back over there, I'm not representing the out-of-phase effect in my ears because I'm not in a state which invites me to have a belief about the out-of-phase effect in my ears. So what I mean by representation is that state which invites someone to have a certain belief. And I'll just, let's just forget about this bit, just the bit down the bottom. <coughs> uh, I've done one uh, Sense of representation is that in which an experience invites an opinion about how things are by its very nature. Okay. Now, now for trouble. What we've said raises what I've called there on the slide the causal problem in the case of colour. X is looking red is good evidence for X is being red. I've already said that, haven't I? It's true anyway. It's also plausible that a necessary condition for an experience being good evidence for something having a certain property is the experience should be a causal response. So, plausible necessary condition for X is looking red being good evidence for X is being red is that it be caused by X is being red. When all goes well. And you might add to that it's anyway plausible. But looking red is caused by being red. When something looks red to you and you're in a state that represents it a certain way, it's very plausible to think what's causing that state when all goes well is precisely the property of being red. But now here's the trouble. What's the cause of looking red? Well, if the optical science goes the way many scientists and philosophers think, it'll be some kind of physical property, some kind of reflectance property. Okay. But I've just been telling you that that reflectance property cannot possibly be being red. That's the evidence I can use. That doesn't equal being red. So you've got a problem. You've got an evidence argument that tells us being red can't be identical with PR, whatever precisely PR may turn out to be. But part of that argument rested on the idea that looking red is good evidence of something being red, and that seems to suggest that red should cause looking red. It turns out what causes looking red is PR. So the trouble. Indeed, you might say the trouble's so bad that we've got a nice, short, easy argument for what limiters about color. Here's how it goes. There are two constraints a property has to meet to being red. Sorry, sorry. There are two constraints a property has to meet in order to be red. One, the property has to be such that looking red is good evidence for it. And two, it has to be the property which typically causes something to look red. Those are the two constraints. And you might say we've simply discovered that no property instantiated in our world satisfies those two constraints. So a limited about colour follows nice and quickly. And you might hammer the point home by... Noticing how different that is from what happens when something looks to be moving. I'll do it again. Though you've all seen it, everyone knows that the experience you just had is good evidence of things like moving. And you also all know that the moving caused the experience, don't you? So what happens in the case of movement is quite different from what happens in the case of colour. Okay, so that's the causal problem in the case of colour. Now, we also get a causal problem in the case of Surely, surely, mental properties cause. States being the belief that it's raining causes physical events, including behaviour. For example, it causes someone to utter the sentence, it's raining. 
Surely that's right. But the properties of a subject that cause the physical events, including behaviour, distinctive of believing that it's raining, are neural states. That's something that's been discovered by science. Now, of course, that's too simple. Lots of properties cause the physical um, events distinctive of believing that it's raining, but the properties of human beings, which are specially involved, are plausibly neural properties. But then the property of believing that it's raining equals N, doesn't it? And there's something wrong with the early argument I gave before, which said that believing that it's raining can't possibly be N. On the previous slide, talking about the causal problem in the case of colour, I said, well, we've got an easy argument for limitism. And you might have said, that's not so bad, because some of you, I bet, are a limitist about colour. Lots of people think, it's an entirely respectable view, that modern science has shown that actually the world's not coloured. But of course, it's a bit rich to say that modern science has shown that the world doesn't have any belief. And even if Paul or Patricia Church should happen to be here, uh, <laughs> I just point out the obvious thing, that the argument we gave could be given for any mental property, couldn't it? I mean, I chose belief for fun, but I could have chosen any mental property. And of course, we don't end up by being a limitist about all mental properties, do we? That would be a disaster, the right word? I think disaster is the right word, isn't it? Okay. Right. So. so what are we going to do? Now, what I'm going to say now is something which initially sounds shocking, um, but I'm hoping by the time I finish talking, for at least some of you, it won't be quite as shocking as you might have thought. What I'm going to say is that we can deny that mental properties cause. Okay? So our problem was generated in the case of mental properties precisely by the idea that mental properties do some causing in the physical world. Perhaps we should step back from that. Well, we step back from it, we're going to have to change our first year lectures, aren't they? I mean, many people in this room have done exactly what I've done. At one stage or other, you stand up and give your first or second year lecture on the philosophy of mind, where you give epiphenomenalism a hard time, and you say, look, there are three arguments that tell us that mental properties cause. And here they are. Introspection. Think what it's like to say it's raining outside when you believe it's raining. Isn't it true that the very factor in the state of believing that it's raining is what drives a sentence out of your mouth? You've all done that. First year or second year or maybe fourth year. And then there's a little bit about evolution where you say mental properties have evolved and that gives us good reason for thinking that they're efficacious because after all, what's evolved, as a rule, not invariably, what's evolved is conducive to survival and it's rather hard to see how something that didn't do any causing could be very conducive to survival. And last of all, you finish up with a bit of chat about knowledge, don't you? We know about properties because of the way they impinge on us in one way or another, or the way they impinge on our instruments, impinging the causal notion, so we better believe that mental properties cause. I hope I've given a thumbnail sketch of your three favourite arguments to saying that mental properties cause. Someone's got a fourth or a fifth one, tell me about it in discussion. Okay, now here's the shocking bit. I'm going to say these arguments don't have any real force. But remember, I will be toning down the shocking bit later on. That's the first shocking bit I'm going to say. Is actually I, and I'm saying this as someone who's given exactly that lecture with those three points. All right. What I'm going to do is I talk about some examples give you a sense of how you might resist the First example is the particle example. To make things simple, we've got two massive bodies, M1 and M2. All the other massive bodies are millions and millions and millions of light years away, so we can ignore that. They don't have any effect. Okay. And the particle there is just moving in the gravitational fields generated by M1 and M2. Now, what path is the particle going to follow? Well, of course, the path it's going to follow is the path determined by the resultant force, isn't it? We've all done those little diagrams in high school physics. 
So the two blue arrows are the component forces induced by M1 and M2, and the red diagonal is the resultant force. And the particle is going to move in a way determined by that diagonal. We could even imagine the particle is conscious and says to itself, I can feel myself moving as a result of this force. This is how it will sing to the particle, won't it? be swept along by that red arrow, won't it? Okay. It, it won't seem to the particle that there are two forces acting on it. will be the result of one. Okay. I'm sure you can all guess what's going to come. Actually, of course, it, it isn't moving <laughs> under the influence of the resultant force because the resultant force does not exist. Now, that's to some extent controversial claim. But the best metaphysics of forces is one which believes in component forces and believes in force fields but actually says, actually, resultant forces don't exist. Because, see, if you said resultant forces existed, gee, this particle is being acted on by three forces. It's obviously being acted on by the two blue ones, isn't it? And my goodness, it's acted on by the red one as well. That's three. It must be moving really fast. It's got three pushing it along. Now, that's, that's, I'm just, that's all, that's really bad, isn't it? <laughs> really is bad. So, the red one doesn't exist, and yet it will seem to the particle. So, the red one you can imagine the particle standing up and giving the introspection speech from the first year philosophy of mind, and it will be all wrong. Here's a second example. Face recognition. Now, this is a better example, perhaps, in Australia than in England, but I imagine many of you recognise that person more or less straight away. And those of you who don't, it's, it's Jack Smart. Um, and perhaps, actually, an English audience, I should have taken a picture of G. Moore or something. Or Tony Blair. Right. Now... What happens when you recognise someone, like Tony Blair on television, whoever it might be, um, here's how it seems to you. It seems to you that the very fact that it's Tony Blair is what drives your judgement of Tony Blair. Don't you look, gee, that's what's causing my response. Now, of course, it actually it's not what's causing the response. <laughs> what's causing the response is a complex facial array, which is actually not transparent to the folk, the people in the shrew who haven't done the experiments in the psychology and cognitive neuroscience lab. Uh, it's actually quite a complicated pattern recognition thing to do with, there's someone here who may be much more of an expert on this subject than I am, but it's something to do with the way things are arranged here, which actually takes quite a bit of serious science to work out what it is. The fact that it's Tony Blair doesn't do any causing at all. Now, don't misunderstand me. Of course, there's a causal story about how it is that you form the judgment that it's Tony Blair. But it's being Tony Blair doesn't itself do any cause. We might talk about, roughly speaking, how the causal story goes in discussion. So, intuitively, the very fact that it's Jack Smart triggers our judgment that it's Jack Smart. And as I say, that's false. Final example. I'm hoping some of you play tennis, but you can guess how it goes if you don't play tennis. After you play tennis for a while, what happens? The idea is that you're up at the net. The blue face is me or whoever it might be up at the net, the person sitting the ball towards you. And of course, well, you've seen this on television. Uh, after you've played for a while, you get a sense that the ball's going out. It looks like, as they say in the jargon, an out ball. It presents itself as an out ball. Um, that is, presents itself as a ball that's going to end up behind the back of the court. So that's your intuitive response. What's causing your judgment is the very fact it's an outball. Now, of course, that's not true. It's being an outball is a future property of it, namely the fact that it's going to end up at the back of the court. And that doesn't do any causing. In fact, what does the causing is a complex set of properties to do with spin and velocity and height and your judgment of what the wind's like, much of which you're unconscious of. I mean, you, you know that the height over there's got something to do with the opposition. But the exact um, congruent of properties that drives the judgment is, in fact, again, something you need to do serious science to find out. But that's not the way it presents it to so to when you're playing tennis. It looks like it's being an outball is what's driving the judgment. Okay. So, 
those are three cases where the intuition about what's doing the causing misleads us. So what should we say and said about these examples? Well, I think in a way, it's, 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 now's the bit where I try and make things sound less shocking. It, there's no big mystery about what's going on here. What's happening is we've got cases where information's been carried. And of course, it's been carried because of underlying causal facts about the whole setup. So the movement of the particle carries information about the resultant force. Because of course, it is true that the resultant force is thus and so. The resultant force doesn't really cause it. But of course, it's a true fact about the situation the particle's in, that the resultant force is so and so. And in fact, the motion of the particle carries information about the resultant force. And again, a judgment that so and so, Jack Smart, Tony Blair, as it might be, or that it's an outball, carries information that it's so and so. When someone looks at Telly and says, that's Tony Blair, what they say, of course, carries information, typically reliably, that it's Tony Blair. What about the famous considerations? Well, introspection. What those examples remind us is that introspection doesn't distinguish between causation proper and carrying of information. Say it again in the Tony Blair example. It's not the fact that it's Tony Blair that makes you form the judgment, but nevertheless, you're forming the judgment, of course, carries because they stand up and say, look, we've refuted the mind-brain identity theory, we've replaced it with functionism, then somebody, dead block as it might be, <laughs> sticks up their hand and says, look, there are these really good arguments that tell us that functional properties don't do any causing. So you're in big trouble. You know, welcome to any phenomenalism, which sounds a bit bizarre, considering that functionalism is a theory driven by the conviction that mental states play causal roles. Well, if the crucial thing is carrying information, then functionalists can relax. What they should say is, what's crucial is that our behavior carries information about our mental states, and of course there'll be a causal story about how that's true. It's not crucial to say that the mental properties are such do cause And here's how they can say it with a simple example, just to make things concrete. Think of, and I'm gonna make life really easy for myself, think of thermostats which are bimetal strips. Now, that's easy, because the way they work, I can do a demo for you like that. The electronic ones, I can't do a demo for them. <laughs> Remember how the argument goes that functional properties don't do any causing? You've got your fridge. goes on and off in that systematic way, distinctive of a fridge that's got a thermostat. And someone says, I think correctly, says, look, there's an object inside that fridge which has the property of being a thermostat. But that property is not doing any causing. Why not? Well, what turns the fridge on or off? Well, there you are, so I can see. Demo. Now, that's not being a thermostat. That's a motion property, isn't it? Click, click, click like that. So, what you say is, well, look, causing is being done by that. It's not being done by the property of being a thermostat. Now, if you think in terms of carrying information, what you say, none of this matters. The behavior of the fridge obviously carries the information that has got a thermostat inside it. And to go back to the point about the evolutionary argument for causal efficacy, you could say, look, actually, that's pretty important. If the fridge didn't behave in such a way that carried information that has got a thermostat inside it, I would throw it away. So it wouldn't survive very long. That just reminds us that carrying information is good for survival. So that's a good news function. What about the good news, and I put a question mark here, forces of text and the philosophy of mind. Well, what it means is that what I've been saying is right. We, we might have to do a bit of rewriting. Chapter 2, or maybe chapter 1, section 4 of philosophy of mind textbooks. Um, and here's what's going to happen. Here's how we say it now. We all, the room will be full of people, and I'm one of them who said almost exactly this. We stand up and give, here's the standard argument for some sort of materialist or physicalist view of the mind. Premise one, mental properties cause physical events. Premise two, the only properties that cause physical events are physical properties. And we give a little speech about the closure of the physical world. And there's our conclusion. Mental properties, physical properties, so we all should embrace materialism or physicalism. That's the standard argument. Now, if what I've been saying is right, we should put a cross to that argument and do it this way. 
Physical events carry information about mental properties. That better be true, otherwise what happens in the physical world would never give you any reason for thinking that people have mental properties. The only properties that physical events carry information about are physical properties. So when you defend that premise, you replace the former speech about the closure of the physical world, the causal closure of the physical world, you replace that with a speech about the informational closure of the physical world. That is, you say, we know enough about how the world works to say that the only properties that physical events carry information about are other physical properties and events. So you just replace the speech about causation by a speech about information. And arguably, each speech will be equal in plausibility. So if you think the speech about the closure of the the causal closure of the physical world gets a big tick, you'll probably give the information speech a big tick. You give the first one a big cross, you'll probably give the information a big cross. So that's how the argument's going to go. There's a lot more to say about that, but that just gives you a sketch of what happens. Now, it'd be nice if I stop now, sit down, but actually, I've been telling you how things are going to go for mental properties. Uh, if we talk in terms of information rather than causation. Remembering always, of course, that information itself is a causal name. Unfortunately, when you look at the question of colour, things get much harder. Let me try and explain why that's true. And let me be up front right away. I'm not quite sure what to say about this. So I'm going to tell you about this problem. <laughs> and this is very much an invitation to people to stick up their hand and say, I know how to solve this. I'll give you a solution, but it's not a solution I'm wonderfully happy with. All right, here's the easy part. What we should say, I think, is that looking red carries information about being red that isn't caused by being red. In fact, you've got to say that, otherwise you would hardly say, as I said before, that looking red is good evidence of being How else could it be evidence of being red? That seems fine. Now, here's the hard part. Okay. If looking red carries information about being red, just what property is it carrying information about? Okay. Well, a sui generis property, I mean, lots of people think the right thing to say about colour is stop being reductionist, stop trying to identify colour with some property that's not colour, just say colour is what it is and not another thing, it's sui generis, you won't find anything to identify with the physical world. Well, if you think that looking red carries information about being red, that's not a happy situation to be in, because we know enough about what causes things to look red to be able to say, I think with a fair degree of confidence, there's no sui generis property that looking red is carrying information about. So that wouldn't be a happy thing to say. You might say PR, whatever precisely PR is, and I think that's true. Um, if the optical science turns out the way lots of people expect, it is true. That looking red carries information about a certain acquaintance quality. But that's not our answer because we had an earlier argument that said that being red can't be that reflectance profile. So that can't be our answer. So what are we going to say? Well, we can say something like this. And this, in fact, is similar to something David Armstrong said many years ago. What happens is when something looks red, it carries information that an object has a light accessible property which stands in all sorts of similarity and distance relations. So when something looks red, it's represented to you as being similar on the surface with other things that look red. It's represented as being similar to blood. It's represented as being dissimilar to green. It's represented as being more similar to pink than it is to sun. It represented as being a mixture of pink and white, and so on. Everything you can get out of the colour solid, that whole thing. So what's happening is that when you have a colour experience, you're representing a complex set of difference and similarity relations revealed by light. And it's plausible, I think, that Aristotle knew that. I mean, Aristotle didn't need to do a course in modern physics to know that when something looks red, it's represented as being more similar to something that's pink, than something that looks to be black. And if it comes to that, Aristotle, I'm certain, knew 
that when something looks red, it's represented as grabbing your attention more than something that's a wishy-washy dull green, and so on. So that would be the idea. Well, looking at certain color dials is carries information about a complex pattern of similarity and difference relations. Okay, so there it is. Now, everyone knows the famous objection to this view, put there on the slide. Well, maybe looking red does represent an object as standing in these complex similarity and difference relations. But isn't it also true that it represents it as having some intrinsic object in virtue of which it stands in those relations? It doesn't just represent that it has some property or other, which means that it's similar and different to other objects. It actually says which property it is. Isn't that the idea? And maybe that's one way of spelling out what people science call revelation. It's not what Armstrong said is, look, there's an unknown property, unknown to color science, which stands in these complex relations. What supporters of revelation say, and surely there's some possibility of this. They say, no, no, when something looks red, it's actually represented as having the very property in virtue which it stands in those relations. It's not an unknown hidden property. In fact, they sometimes say, look, when something looks red, what could be more patent and transparent about the property that stands in those relations? And they might follow it up by some sort of inverted spectrum argument, and I won't inflict inverted spectrum arguments strongly. I'm sure you could all produce them. We all got three or four in our back pocket. What are we going to say? This is the bit. I'm going to say this. Someone this morning said, how much do you believe this? And I said, I think I believe it on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And on Tuesday and Thursdays, I'm not sure. But this is the idea. What I mean by Charlie Brown and the Rescue? Well, you all know who Charlie Brown is. The guy who never quite makes up his mind one way or the other. What, what you say is something like this. Look, there's an element of illusion about colour experiences. Colour experiences do indeed, as the supporters of Revelation say, represent that objects have properties that stand in these relations and what more, they putatively reveal the very properties that stand in those relations. You don't have to do some experiments to find out. They actually say, this is the very property which sustains these similarity and difference relations. But it's an illusion. There is no property which essentially by its very nature stands in those relations. And what do you, when I say Charlie Brown at the rescue, say, well, this means that if you set really high standards for being red, being green and being yellow, the right thing to say is nothing is red or green or yellow. But if you set more moderate Charlie Brown standards, you say, well, nothing meets the complete job description set by our representational nature of our experience of colour, but there are things that go near enough. And near enough is good enough. See why I call it the Charlie Brown position? Now, last thing to say, and then, then we're done. And I'll explain this sec one. <coughs> so I'm going to say something which you're going to say, I'm quite certain what this connection's got to what I said before, but it will reveal to you shortly. <laughs> um, there are a whole set of cases, examples, where differences come in pairs. What I mean by that is well, this class of things is different from this, but actually there are two differences, not one. And I'll skip a few times. And then I'll tell you what I'm sure what Some properties require underlying state in order to be instantiated, and it's the underlying state which is the second difference. There's our first example. Suppose we've got all the grammatical sentences in the circle and all the ungrammatical sentences outside. So there's a division here, the grammatical ones in here, the ungrammatical ones out there. Now, what's important is that there are two differences between the things inside the circle and the things outside the circle. One difference is this. The things inside the circle are okay sentences in the language in question. The things outside the circle or not. But there's another difference. The other difference is what you find in grammar books. When you open up a grammar book, it tells you what it takes to be a grammatical sentence in English. And it will be to do with the structure of these things. Right? Okay. 
the structure of these things. So there are two differences. And there've got to be two differences. You couldn't learn a grammar if there was, if someone said, look, there are sentences which it's okay to say in English, and sentences not okay to say, but actually there's no other difference between them. You say, look, hold on. But I thought I'd make the point by, we've all given that tutorial about the recursive definition of a well-formed formula. Imagine you trot in the students that we're really mad keen to find out the difference between the well-formed ones and the not well-formed. You say, but you already know, well-formed ones the ones I give a tick to on the exercise sheet, and they're not well-formed, they're across to. There's nothing else to say. And of course the students would get up in arms and they say, hold on. <laughs> Isn't there something to do with the left-hand brackets that got a, you know, this is just hammering the point out. So that's one example. Here's a second example. Poisons, non-poisons. Um, the poisons make you sick and the non-poisons don't, but that's not the only difference between... Okay. Obvious one. Now, finally, and now you'll see why I'm talking about this. And here's another example, lightning and non-lightning. Um, lightning is the stuff which presents itself in a very distinctive way in the sky, and the non-lightning doesn't. But that's not the only difference. There's an underlying difference in state. Uh, you, know, you now see why I'm talking about it. What is the underlying difference in state? Well, of course, the lightning is an electrostatic atmospheric discharge, and the non-lightning is not, isn't it? Now, it's the science that tells you about the underlying state. So now you can see why I'm talking about this. There it is. See, the sort of evidence argument I gave right at the beginning, you might say, hold on, this can't be right. Because didn't Aristotle know about the existence of lightning? I mean, when people do the history of ancient Greece, they don't write down, amazingly, Aristotle didn't know about lightning. That's not what they say. Of course he knew about lightning. Uh, but of course, he didn't know about atmospheric electrostatic discharges. So you might say, hold on. Couldn't we use that evidence argument from Leibniz's law to establish the amazing conclusion that science is wrong when it tells us that lightning is an electrostatic discharge? That would not be good, would it? Well, crucial point is, of course, is that there are two differences between lightning and non-lightning. One of the things is the stuff Aristotle knew about, and that property is indeed a property which can't be identified with an electrostatic discharge. That's the property Aristotle knew about. But of course, there's also the second property, and that's the property science has revealed, uh, and that's the electrostatic discharge. And going back to the case of mental properties, of course, I say exactly the same thing about mental properties. Just as there are two differences between lightning and non-lightning, I say there are two differences between the states which have the property of believing snow is white and those which don't have that property. One is the property, in my opinion, the functional property, but other views, of course, possible and common. That's one difference, and that's the difference Aristotle knew about in the functional property, but other views, of course, are possible and common. That's one difference, and that's the difference Aristotle knew about, but also, of course, there's a second difference, and that, in my opinion, turns out to be a difference in neural nature, and that's, of course, what neuroscience tells us. Aristotle didn't know about that, and as far as I know, we still don't quite know what it is, but people are working on it as I speak. <laughs>